Welcome to False Bottom Girls, a podcast about the wonderful yet sometimes confusing world of beer and brewing. Hi, I'm Rachel Hudson, owner of Pilot Brewing and Advanced Cicerone. Hi, I'm Jen Blair, sensory expert, home brewer, and Advanced Cicerone. All right, welcome everyone to this episode of False Bottom Girls. Today we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Laura Burns from Omega Geese. And we're going to talk a lot, a lot about a lot of different things today, but one of the things in particular we invited her on here to talk about is thiols. Um, so I should also say, if you don't already know, I'm Jen. I'm a very sick Jen. That's why my voice sounds <laughs> like this. <laughs> no, you don't sound that bad. Thank you. And that is Rachel. So, <laughs> so thank you everyone for joining us. And uh, Laura, why don't you give us an intro? Sure. Yeah. So I, um, I was brewing for a while before I started up at Omega Yeast, but, um, kind of very interested in, um, the science behind brewing, obviously, but my background before brewing was a PhD in yeast biology. So kind of stacked into this position at Omega with a lot of experience in the bench work and also in the brewery and combining that now in my position at Omega Yeast as um, the director of research and development. So basically day to day, I combine kind of um, bench science and brewing and make it kind of relevant to kind of what brewers might be interested in doing and how, how we can change flavor or quality or, or any kind of, you know, positive attribute to beer and kind of better, better the experience for the brewer. Awesome. And can you tell us a little bit about Omega? Because you all are a fairly young company. Isn't that correct? That's right. Yeah. So Omega, um, really about eight years ago, started up from a very small operation in Chicago. And we have a, a really great um, beer community here. So um, kind of grassroots began with uh, local customers and really established kind of um, the business model. And then every year since then really um, just kept expanding into new areas and, and new products. And um, from the beginning, Lance also, our, one of our owners has a PhD in yeast biology. So his real focus was also on kind of debunking myths and bringing innovation to yeast from the start. Like um, we were the first to introduce a, a yeast hybrid, like a mated, two mated um, yeast strains to make kind of new products. We were the first to introduce those um, with Sazenstein's Monster. Um, and we also had kind of the first commercial lacto culture for breweries and introduced Kvike and all that happened before I started at Omega, uh, but was really the momentum of innovation here was just really going. So, um, yeah. So, and then since, yeah, the eight years of growth, we're now, um, you know, we're now kind of distributing all over the world um, and continuing to kind of really educate and innovate, um, just trying to make, make brewing fun. Nice. Yeah. I lived in Chicago for a couple of years and as a home brewer, remember um, starting to see Omega yeast at my local brew and grow and like, you know, trying it out, trying out like Season Science Monster and being so excited that there was a yeast company in Chicago where I like, I felt like this is big time 
like I, I'm, I'm like a pro brewer because I can go to my homebrew store and there is Omega yeast there that was like packaged the day before. And you, like, you couldn't find that with any other yeast company. Um, so yeah, yeah. I'm, I've definitely been a big fan of Omega and the, I remember actually the first time I used a like, bike strain was yours. Um, and I think it was your hothead. Yeah. And I had gotten it when I was in Chicago and I was working at pilot with Rachel and came I remember back and this. Like, yeah. I have this yeast that I'm really <laughs> excited to use. It's supposed to ferment really hot and really take off. And I, they had done starters like the day before. And one of the other brewers like texted me and was like, we had to turn the stir plate off because like the starter started like <laughs> blowing off and everybody, we were all just like, what is this yeast? Um, so that was something definitely like the innovation that Omega brought, I think has really changed just the yeast market because before it was, you know, kind of, you had your, you had your standards and the standards are great. They're fantastic, but there wasn't, it didn't seem like there was as much innovation as there is now that like Omega came on the scene and started like with these hybrid strains and with having lacto cultures. I remember also as a home brewer, that being a very big thing that I was able to be able to get. And uh, yeah, so I'm just, I'll stop gushing about Omega, but I'm just <laughs> such a big fan of the company and the product and the research that you all do. Thank you. No, I also we're happy have to, to add the customer service is top notch too. As a someone who <laughs> someone who purchases yeast for the brewery, it's I always have really good customer service. I appreciate Aww. that more than you could know. I'm gonna make sure to pass <laughs> that one on. It could uh it could be rough sometimes when some companies have a shipping problem and you're like, what is happening? Can you please just figure this out? And they're like, Yes, I will figure it out. I'm like, thank you. That's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, hate, we want to make it as problems. easy as possible. That yeah. means getting the yeast to you. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's part of it. Yep. No, we love Omega here. Um, but specifically like we're talking about this style yeast, you guys have all, you know, with your innovation and I, I'm thiol, the thiol strains were something that came along while you've been working here. I would imagine these are pretty recently. Yep. Um, so can you just like, just tell us what that even means? Yeah. Assuming, <laughs> assuming, Assuming that our viewers or listeners, sorry, know what yeast is, go ahead and explain what a thiol yeast strain is. Yes, absolutely. So um, first I'll just kind of briefly talk about thiols in general. Um, they're extremely odorant, but also, um, so like really, really small amounts give you um, a strong aroma and they're really key attributes of like kind of signature um, aromas of like fruits or coffee or, um, marijuana or, you know, hops, all of these, um, thio compounds can contribute to anything from, you know, passion fruit and, um, grapefruit, which we'll be talking about mostly today. Um, but also coffee has its key characteristic roasty quality from thiols and, you know, cannabis has its skunky character from thiols. Um, so these are really pretty broadly found in nature and there's a huge variety of them, but they're very odorant and very characteristic of kind of what you associate with that aroma. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. And so like in hops, you know, we have like the total oil of a hop being a very, very small fraction of, you know, maybe 2%, but even of that total oil, you're talking about like less than a percent of that being made up of thiols. So, um, 
you know, Nelson Sauvin and Mosaic really sought after hops, but also really high in free thiols. So those are kind of characteristics to expect from, from these compounds. Um, and then with thiolized yeast, um, you know, inspiration, a lot of the inspiration from the work that I started here at Omega came from Sauvignon Blanc wine. Um, you know, I had been drinking a lot of the uh, Sauvignon Blancs from different regions of the world, but the region that really stood out was the um, New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs and the Maraboa region, and just the insane amount of tropical fruit that was coming out of those wines. And I was like, what, where does this come from? This is so striking. Um, and then I, I learned more and more about it and, and realized that the yeast was um, releasing those flavors and fermentation. Mm -hmm. So that was really interesting and inspiring. And then um, a long journey of kind of figuring out why this doesn't work in beer, but that beer has an extremely high potential for producing these aromas. Um, in the end came down to, you know, us um, basically adding back this activity to brewing strains so that they could be releasing them during fermentation like they do in wine. Mm. So that's what it means when we say thialized yeast, we introduced um, basically this biotransformation activity back into brewing strains. Um, many of them lost that activity because they have a mutated form of the enzyme that's required to do that. Uh, but also in beer, you've got a ton of nutrient and they just have no reason to turn this enzyme expression on. And so mm -hmm. they just never even, they never even activate it. Um, yeah. So that's, that's how we built it in as we turned it on and we found an active version of it, which it is the enzyme IRC7 um, to produce these free thiols and fermentation. That's really cool. And I remember reading about the first time I read about uh, free and bound files was in Scott Janish's book, The New IPA. And he talked about it the same way in this, like the research had all been done in wine and he had the same recommendation. Well, before there was stylized yeast, you know, find like that enzyme from that the wine industry uses to be able to release some of those bound files in different hop characteristics. And I remember thinking that was so cool because it was also, um, I mean, it's it's just cool anyway. It's And we talk about this on the podcast, how there's so much beer science and particularly fermentation science that's still not completely understood. Like for a lot of it, there's some really good guesses, but, or I shouldn't say guesses, but there's, you know, some informed opinions on what's going on. Um, but, you know, realizing like, oh, you could be, you could use like the stylized yeast and use, you know, a, a greater, like a much reduced capacity of hops, of expensive hops, because you can maximize that flavor that you're getting just by using like this yeast and unlocking that potential. Uh, and I just think that's such a cool thing to be able to, you know, to to walk through that process of figuring out how do we do this with beer because there's so much in the wine, there's just so much more research in the wine world, you know, because for, for beer for the longest amount of time, and still today, most beer, the goal is to make a very consistent, very like nearly flavorless product. So there's not a ton of research into like, how do we get more flavors? Like, how do we get less flavor? And how do we like continue to like breed for less flavor? 
And I love seeing that that's changing. And I think that's just a really cool process to hear about um, you going through to figure out how, like, I imagine, like, I kind of picture you, like, with a glass of wine, and then, like, the, the next step, you've got, like, your goggles and your lab coat, like, at your microscope that you have, just, like, right there, um, because neither Rachel nor I has a scientific background, so that's what I think, like, anybody with a science background, you just, like, have that, like, at the ready. Yeah, that's <laughs> not entirely untrue. <laughs> I think uh, I, the one struggle from the beginning was you know, these aromas that were coming from wine combined with and have synergy and antagonism and all sorts of interactions with other wine aroma compounds and starting to pick up what those compounds are in beer and training yourself with sensory to recognize what those aromas are mm-hmm. in combination with malt, in combination with ho- other hop aromas. Um, so that was really interesting, actually. And you two being, you know, advanced cicerones, like, I'm sure you would nerd out on the sensory science of it because it's Absolutely. super oh, fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've tried, I tried a handful of beers in Colorado a couple weeks ago with thiolase strings, man, I am, I am just not like that passion fruit. Um, it's not like the thiolase compound. It's just whatever one that produces all that passion fruit. Oh man, I do not like that. Like, <laughs> yeah, that was I, I do not, I don't like passion fruit, that, but that is what I learned at my time judging a JABF. Like, and then afterwards we went, I think we went to one brewery and they had a thiolized lager on. And I was like, hmm. I was like, oh, that's right. There's that passion fruit. I was like, I will not, I need to figure out which strains have no passion fruit character. And that's the one, that's the one for me. Right? Yeah. That's and Rachel was dense. like, I guess I hate passion fruit. I hate it. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, it. I think the, um, the real kicker though is integrating flavor. You know, it's mm-hmm. not about, you know, sometimes you can be over the top and, you know, certain aspects of your Roman flavor in a, you know, even with yeast, if you think about the volatiles yeast produced in fermentation, like it can be overly phenolic and you may not like that. It can be overly banana ester forward and you might not like that. So finding out the right balance of aroma and, you know, if it's yeah. not the, the massive um, defining character of that beer, but it's well integrated, I think that's really important. Um, not the, uh, intensity yes. of it but the quality of it and making sure yeah. that it it does fit in with the rest of that recipe yeah mm-hmm. I've, I've even found that true with like the kvike strings uh well the one that i use a lot is the voss and i underpitch it um just because it it just blends that flavor just blends with the hops more nicely and like you said it's not overpowering um that's yep. my experience i haven't really tried thialized ones yet because a little scared that passion fruit <laughs> <laughs> the ones I've tried yeah but, uh, I think but the, I hear you yeah yeah um and the you know the two different versions of the enzyme that we use in our thialized yeast one of them is the yeast IRC7 and the other one is a bacterial um cysteine thialase pat b and you know IRC7 is basically like a just a nice like bump of thial character without it becoming the dominant aroma um, and I think that's, you know, really versatile and for most hoppy styles only adds like that kind of almost MSG note of a thial in there where you're not, it's there, but you're not, it's not a defining factor. Yeah. Um, and then the Pat B versions, these, the Helio Gazer Star Party and uh, Lunar Crush, 
those are already 20 times more of the thial intensity of, of cosmic punch. And those are really truly meant to be paired with highly hopped styles mm -hmm. because to match the aroma intensity of hops, you need to have the thial intensity mm -hmm. um, or it just might get all pretty much muddled in there without really being noticed. Um, so I think those new versions can be pretty powerful um, in more base styles, like a lager where you're like, wow, that's no, now I'm tasting, that's kind of more tasting like Sauvignon Blanc. This is different. Right. You know? Yeah. 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 So uh, tell us a little bit about when you're using products like this, since you, since Omega is so innovative in the yeast world, how do you, um, like, what are some of your best practices for educating customers on how best to use these new strains that you're coming out with? Um, it is a lot about the flexibility, I guess, like, and how you can integrate them into the recipe because, you know, there's ways of maximizing thial intensity and there's ways of reducing thial intensity. And depending on which strain you're using, there's a lot of things that you can tweak there too. So Cosmic Punch with IRC7, the yeast enzyme doesn't overwhelm aroma and flavor, but if you want it to be more passion fruit forward, you can try things like um, mash hopping or things uh, use all barley grist because actually barley contributes a ton of the thiol precursor that is released in, by the yeast, surprisingly, kind of counterintuitive, not something you would have thought initially. Um, but yeah, more base styles, like a blonde, a lager or, or a pale ale with like a pound, two pound per barrel dry hopping rate would be, would give you kind of an obvious style note without, um, overwhelming it. And then if you're going to use some of the other strains where you're at a really high intensity, you have to match that with hop intensity, or there's ways of even dialing that back, um, it's really effective just blending the yeast. So this stylized version can be easily blended into um, kind of the parent strain that was used. So we have Star Party, which is a thialized Chico. You can blend the Chico in and it really modulates the amount of thial output based on the blend ratio. So it's a pretty easy tool. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, it's really the balance of you know, precursor coming from the malt, maybe adding a little bit more with mash hopping, maybe adding a little bit more with um, wine grape derived products, the Phantasm wineskins pack a ton of precursor too. And those can be used as ways of really enhancing uh, the thiol output. And then if you're wanting to dial it back, then, you know, higher dry hopping rates, maybe sub a portion of the grist out for wheat or oats, um, and working to, you know, maybe even blend in the yeast, but there's quite a range of, um, use for these strains and, and it doesn't, yeah, I think it, you know, brewers are figuring it out and, and a lot of them are integrating these aromas really well. Um, we've had lots of brewers meddling with these, but they're in standard categories that are pretty competitive and it's not probably that style bomb that's entered and winning. It's something that was just very well yeah. designed. Right. Yeah. I have a quick question. You were mentioning 
everything seems to be very ingredient derived when it comes to the style release. What about other parameters like fermentation temperature, oxygen, uh, pitch rates, um, you know, the other things that we are so used to thinking about when it comes to yeast, nutrition, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, Some of the, I, th- I guess the one thing I would consider when looking at fermentation rate, so you can influence fermentation rate by you know, oxygenation rates, pitch um, rates, and temperature. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more the faster the fermentation, the more volatiles are driven off during fermentation. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. if you overoxygenate, ferment warm, and overpitch, you're going to be driving a ton of the aroma off that these yeasts produce. So those will be less intense. Yeah. Um, and then if you're fermenting cooler you're under pitching or you're slowing fermentation down, um, those are going to be more intense, just yeah. more of those volatiles are being captured. Right. So okay. those are, I mean, inherently the yeast is still giving the output probably that's pretty similar. Uh-huh. Um, but it's, it's it might be, compounds. it might be a little bit more related to how that fermentation just rate affects the absorption of those in, in fermentation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's so before um, I was in my current position, I worked in craft malt. And so I've been so excited too about thiols just because that was one of the, you know, main things in my time with the craft maltsters guild was how do we help craft maltsters delineate their product as, you know, this is something that's different and kind of along the same lines of like with thialized yeast, it's there are a lot of things that you have to be able to fine tune, but if you just kind of treat craft malt, like it's the same like commodity malt that you've been using, uh, you're not like, you're going to be surprised with what your results are. So it does take more of an, of an understanding or at least appreciating that there will be differences Mm -hmm. uh, between, you know, between just, you can't just like pitch a thialized yeast, like you've pitched all your other yeasts. There's going to be like, there's going to be differences in the finished product. And that was like that a lot with, I know, craft maltsters, you know, trying to communicate that as well to brewers and distillers to a lesser extent, that there will be just even performance differences. There are things you need to take into account for this. But I really, really, really love knowing that the, there's so many thiols, bound thiols in barley that are, you know, that the debate on does terroir matter when it comes to barley when it comes to barley, when it comes to malt, you know, that's, that's a debate that even within the craft malt community, there are some people who say absolutely yes. And there are some people who say absolutely no. And most people are somewhere in the middle and say it depends. And so the, the, the bound files from barley, I think for me is one of the most exciting things because to me, I'm like, okay, there we go. Craft monsters. You've got something now, you know, now <laughs> so if you've got somebody you can work with, if you've got a great relationship with a brewer, you can work with them on these different um, barley varieties you have and where are they grown and how are they grown and how is that going to impact, you know, using the stylized yeast, like what, what can we unlock? Um, Because I'm sure you feel the same way. Uh, You know, again, in the malt world, it was like malt matters. Everyone (laughs) pay attention to malt. Malt can be so much more than just like a sugar delivery mechanism Uh, Because, you know, it's like hops are sexy. Hops are where it's at. There's all these new varieties every year. They're hard to get. Um, You know, customers know what kind of hops they like. And it's like, pay attention to the other ingredients. Uh, So now it's kind of like, you know, like yeast and malt are like 
we've yeah. got this. <laughs> We're working <laughs> together now. <laughs> yeah, I think it's super interesting too, because just like hops and um, grapes that have a lot of these style compounds that actually end up being freed, net, like in their in their normal fermentations or just during ripening or what have you, um, you know, those are so dependent on variety. Those are so dependent on regionality, you know, agronomics all of that feeds into the Roman, those products. Um, and so I think like to consider that being very similar with barley, you know, varieties growing region, you know, are you using winter barley? Are you using spring barley? Are you growing in, you know, Colorado? Are you growing in, um, you know, Canada or Germany or wherever? Um, right. but it's pretty cool to, to think about that. And even just, you know, there's malting practices and there's, um, you know, there's lots of shifts right now with, I love the craft malt movement as well, just like with manipulating malt flavor. So pretty cool. Yeah. And have you, or are, are you aware you may not be, are you aware of uh, like any ongoing research you can share more into like barley variety and thiol performance? Well, we definitely have talked with a lot of uh, malt suppliers who are interested in this. Um, you know, we've looked across different barley varieties. We know there are differences. There's not anything that we've been able to publish or put out as far as, you know, exact, um, you know, precursor and free thiols and fermentation and correlations and everything with growing regions or varieties, but we know there are differences. So that's pretty mm -hmm. cool. And then awesome. within the barley, um, there's probably quite a bit of variation. We don't know how much variation there would be in wheat or oats, but what we've looked at so far, um, those haven't contributed a lot of precursor. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That was going to be a question. So you had mentioned before, like it to make the, the flavor less intense, maybe mixing more wheat or oats into the grist. So that's really interesting um, to hear, but yeah, I, I think it's super exciting because I, I will always have the soft spot in my heart for, for maltsters. And I want, mm -hmm. I want them to get exciting things too and have exciting news. <laughs> and I think it's just, it's, it's extremely cool developments for, uh, you know, craft brewers who are, you know, looking for like, where's that innovation, what to do next to really get, get be able to get into the technical details and, you know, specifically, specifically choose, I want this barley variety that's been grown here to go with, you know, this stylized yeast strain to go with these hops. And it's all just very deliberate. And not that it's not normally not deliberate for a lot of brewers, but there is some, you know, just routine of like, well, if you're going to brew an IPA, you do this, this, and this, and that's how you make an IPA. And, you know, being able to manipulate each of your ingredients to just arrive at that, that final flavor profile you're looking for, I think is just such a cool opportunity for, for brewers to have that they haven't had yet. Um, and like, that's, I think the thylase is so cool for that. Yeah. And, you know, these are, again, these are aroma compounds that do fit into like hop forward styles, but even between the varieties of hops that are being used, there's certain hops that just tend to work better in combinations with these yeasts. And those are going to be ones that are known to have those really just strong, you know, either liche or like gooseberry or, um, you know, passion fruit, grapefruit, like those aroma qualities that are in different hop varieties work really well with these yeasts as well. I mean, like when you're going for 
um, something very southern hemisphere. These right. these yeasts really work well with that. We'd have to try some thiols. Some, <laughs> some I irises seven. Sorry, irises seven. Yeah, irises seven. So yep. this, from my notes, I feel like that's the one I should try. I think you would definitely like that. Okay. <laughs> I think the experience too is pretty interesting because in the you know in the fermentation pre dry hop you can get an idea of what those thiol compounds are. Yeah, and and uh, and and you'll taste the beer pre dry hop and post dry hop and really know how those flavors integrate, which is pretty, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Nice. nice. And you had mentioned also at kind of toward the beginning and uh, our friend Shana works with you. She's a friend of the podcast. And um, I know that she does a lot of sensory stuff. Um, she and I often geek out over sensory. So you <laughs> had mentioned, you know, training your palate on like files versus hop compounds. Do you have guidance for people who are like, I wonder if I've tasted a thiol, how can I, you know, train on this individual attribute for thiols? Yeah. Um, so there are definitely, I would say like in the baking scene, there's a lot of people using like passion fruit curd or, um, like even just passion fruit, like dried freeze dried powders for flavorings and like icings. And so like, if you see a passion fruit, um, macaroon or something, or a passion fruit, um, baked like a nice pastry of some sort. That's a nice way to get a sense of what passion fruit is, because that's going to be a major part of this. Um, and then if, I mean, we, we've done a bunch of candy trials and chapstick <laughs> trials and all sorts of things. Everybody has passion fruit on a label at this point or guava. Um, mm -hmm. that's a big focus on flavor is, or these tropical flavors. So you'll get it in, in a lot of other um, food products and beverage products, but try some Sauvignon blocks from Marlboro. I think that would be like right in line with what to expect. Um, and then if you are homebrewing, I guess the easiest thing to do is to, um, split the batch and use the parent strain and the thiolized strain and have that mm -hmm. side by side. Cause even in the context of all the other aromas and flavors that are in your recipe, you should still be able to pick up that difference between the two. Again, if you're way over the top in hop intensity, some of those subtleties will be difficult to determine the differences. So um, try to use a, a simplified approach to it. Don't, don't go crazy. Keep it in that pound, two pound per barrel dry hop range and, and try to get it to come through in an obvious way. Okay, cool. Thank you. Yeah. That's, and that's in, in the end, a lot of times, like those beers can just go into the same um, keg and condition, like just blended it post firm and have, have one beer in the end. If it, it's not like you have to use it as just an experiment, right. <laughs> they're, they're both going to be good drinking beers. Um, but yeah, another thing that we've done here quite a bit is just try the base recipe without a dry hop and then dry hop and make sure, you know, the difference, because when hop intensity comes in, you, you kind of have a harder time picking it out. Director of R and D, you watch us through kind of the process for, you know, figuring out like, how do we make thialized yeast? Are there other projects you've done that have been kind of inspired that way where like you weren't necessarily looking for inspiration, but then it hit you and it was like, I wonder why. And then, you know, now there's like an Omega product out there based on that. Yeah. Um, for sure. Like, I guess before seltzer was a thing, we had a lot of like, um, studies on nutrients 
and definitely didn't have something that we were meaning to market from those studies, but it's, it certainly worked right into the seltzer market where um, we had a seltzer nutrient to launch really early on in that. Um, outside of that, the biggest thing of like an aha moment was I worked a lot in brewing with um, a lot of brewers with a lot of approaches to making hazy IPAs. I started contract brewing at a place where I was head brewer director of quality. And it was in 2016 when like hazies were just taking, were seriously taking over, but everybody was trying to figure it out. And I think the missing link to a lot of these issues was whether people were getting haze or not getting haze was the yeast strain. And a lot of our work here at Omega has found that certain strains are better for producing stable haze in beer. So our British five is a haze positive yeast is what we call it. So that was a really... <laughs> That was an awesome project because we were just doing some initial like flask fermentations with dry hop to look at differences between different yeast strains and dry hop creep. Um, but from that experiment alone, we just saw such an apparent difference in haze with all of these different dry hopped beers that it was like, huh, there's a lot of haze coming from this subset of strains and let's figure right. this out a little bit more. Um, and then that worked into like a really like, a, it's almost an ongoing um, project for two years now, but, you know, we keep unraveling it more and more. So it's just one of those, yeah, we, we totally got inspired by the first results visually um, might, might not have been smelling that Sauvignon Blanc wine, but certainly <laughs> like that was the inspiration to seeing those differences between those different yeast strains. Right. So That's you're part cool. of the problem. Omega's yeah. part of the problem. Thanks, yeah, we guys. are. Actually, we found, we, <laughs> unfortunately, we probably were the cause of the hazy IP. Oh my God, <laughs> in this podcast right now. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I think that the yeast strain, like just thinking back to some, even like we know strains that are used in some of the um, notoriously non-hazy, hazy IPAs <laughs> are ones <laughs> that we would, we would say are haze neutral. They don't really contribute. You have to work on the recipe a lot more to be able to build yeah. haze with that yeast strain. Um, so yeah, it's pretty, we're hoping to just give a little bit more of the science behind it and help brewers have a successful hazy when they want it. Mm -hmm. Right. I really love, I love hearing all of that just because being able to have that freedom to just look at results or, you know, taste a glass of wine and say, like, I wonder and, and, you know, being able to explore that and having the tools available to explore it and turn it into something, I think that's just so cool. And uh, like I mentioned, neither Rachel nor I has, comes from a very strong scientific background. So like for me, fermentation and yeast is still magic. Um, I like, I logically, I know that it's not, uh, but it sounds like there's still a little bit of magic in the process. Um, there being able is. to ex explore those questions. That's super cool. Yeah, I'm lucky, honestly, that this was much, harder to do being a brewer you know you have oh, yeah. a lot of observations that were really fun and really interesting but to put them into experiments was you know you oh where's the production time? you know yeah you had, you had a lot more I get it on your plate so it's really fun being here at Omega and having the like really the bandwidth and the the space to be creative right yeah right that's, that's really cool. And we've, um, I, I don't remember if I've mentioned it since we started recording, but we did recommend Top Crop for our Patreon listeners each month in our monthly newsletter. We recommend, uh, you know, something, a 
podcast, a newsletter, something beer related. And when Top Crop released, that was like, okay, I know what's getting recommended this week. And I'm, I'm, I'm on there all the time. I think that's just such a good resource to really just demystify so much stuff, which again, is something else that I think has been missing from the beer world is that, you know, there was a lot of like closely kept information, but there's a ton of research out there. And I think you all do an amazing job of putting that research out there in a way that's, you know, it's educational, it's bite-sized, and it's also entertaining. And when I read something on Top Crop, I walk away like, okay, now I've, I've, mm-hmm. I've digested this information and I know what I can do next. Um, so for everyone listening, if you're not already sub- subscribed to Top Crop, I highly, highly recommend subscribing to that. All I right. Appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. Um, we really fun. appreciate your time. And um, I thank you for graciously accepting me gushing about Omega so much. <laughs> <laughs> I just love seeing people doing what you guys do, like reaching out, making, making things really approachable to all the women in the industry. It's pretty awesome. I'm, well, thank well, you. I'm thankful. <laughs> thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. And if people want to learn more about Omega Yeast, where, where can they go? Um, definitely the website, Instagram, all the kind of social media stuff. And um, yeah, with any of the new products that we have, things like that, we have a mailing list. So um, usually those are pretty quick ways to just get a pulse on what we're doing. Um, and of course, Top Cup. Yeah. All right, cool. Awesome. Yep. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you everyone for listening. And it's so funny. Every time I end these, I, I'm more aware of it when we have somebody else here. It's like the one time I look directly into the camera and we're not like, nobody sees these recordings. Um, but I do, <laughs> like I did, like I deliver this whole thing at the end. Um, so for those of you who are listening, just know that I just stare directly in the camera for like <laughs> this one time um, when I do this, but you can find us on social media at False Bottom Girls on Instagram and Facebook. You can email us, falsebottomgirls at gmail.com, and you can visit our website, falsebottomgirls.com. So with that, Laura, thank you again so much for your time today. This was amazing. And Rachel, thank you for your time. And naturally, thank you everyone, for dealing with my my scratchy coffee kind of <laughs> voice. Feel better. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> and with that, we will say thank you very much. Yes. Yep, thank you, guys. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Laura. This has been False Bottom Girls. And we make the Bruin world go round.